Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. When you work alone, it can be a bit more difficult to see the happiness moments and appreciate them. And also, we can be isolated from the things which give us moments of happiness. So for me, the profound shift was understanding how we can rob ourselves of happiness moments when we work for ourselves. This episode's conversation is all about happiness, and I'm really happy, naturally, to be talking to Dr. Laurie Santos, who is a professor at Yale. And she's a cognitive scientist and started a course called The Science of Wellbeing a few years back when she noticed that the students that she had pastoral care for were really struggling with burnout and were just miserable. And she wanted to try and create something that could help navigate their lives without so much difficulty and misery. And it was a massive hit. It still remains one of the most popular courses at Yale. But at the time, they couldn't accommodate the number of people who wanted to take the course to the extent that they had to get a concert hall as a venue for the in-person teaching because so many people were interested in taking it. And now you can actually take the course for free online through Coursera. So I really recommend looking that up. And Laurie has taken the lessons from the course and turned them into a podcast called The Happiness Lab, which I hugely recommend. The conversations she has are so warm and interesting, and the people that she talks to are just fascinating. You've interviewed so many amazing thinkers on your podcast, The Happiness Lab. I wondered which of the thinkers that you've interviewed on your podcast had kind of changed the way you think about work and happiness, if any of them have. Like, I'm particularly thinking about Marty the Rat Catcher, but I also wondered if there were any others who'd kind of changed the way you thought perhaps about your own work or other people's work. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, I mean, Marty is amazing and still has to come to my house to catch rats. So you know, he's, he's a thinker that I see a lot often on a embarrassingly regular basis. I think the two that I would say have had the most effect on me personally, such that I've changed how I behave based on what they've taught. Um, one would be Ashley Willens, um, who is in my episode called For Whom the Alarm Clock Told. She's an expert on what's called time affluence, this idea of having free time and what it does for our well-being. Um, and she has talked a lot about how you can kind of maximize your time affluence and limit your time famine. And this is something I need desperately because I'm way time famished all the time. And so Ashley has been a huge help to me. I've really tried to put into effect her advice. But the other person I think is is really relevant to you know the topic of this podcast, right? Kind of being alone and things, um, which would be Don Wetzler, who is the inventor of the ATM and invented the ATM in part because he had theories about about you know, what would improve our happiness, whether we were 
kind of standing in line chatting with folks at the bank teller, or if we could just kind of, you know, wham, bam, get that done really quickly and move on to some more important things in life. And, you know, talking with him really made me realize the power of connection, even when those connections are with just weak ties, you know, the people we see in the bank line. Those are the kinds of things that matter a lot for happiness. And that episode felt incredibly prescient with COVID-19. You know, I filmed that long before I ever thought, you know, bank lines would be this glorious thing that I would want to return to, you know, like just being around other humans within six feet. It sounds so delightful right now. But I learned so much about the importance of weak ties then, but I think it's only become so salient to me how powerful these things are, you know, now that we've lost them in the context of COVID-19. That's actually an episode that influenced part of the writing of my book, because I was also very taken with his wife, I believe I'm right in saying, who refused to use the ATMs, the cash points, as we call them here, because she wanted to maintain those those nice weak ties. And she didn't want to lose the kind of casual relationships that she had with people like bank tellers, which I took on as a whole idea and ended up writing about how we have to be really careful um, when we're solo, that we don't ignore the value of, of those sort of fleeting social connections and that we don't always buy our stamps online and we go to the post office and we, you know, we don't automate every function of our solo working lives that we possibly can because by doing so we miss out on a whole load of other things. So in a way she was more important to me. Than he was, <laughs> Eleanor Wetzel was much more important than Don Wetzel. No, for me too. I mean, both both in talking to her about, you know, why she refuses to use her husband's very, very famous invention still, you know, like 60 or some odd years on, but also just in interacting with her personally. First of all, it was one of the longest podcast episodes I've ever recorded. You know, my battery ran out. I had to like, you know, scramble to find, you know, double A batteries to kind of put back in and things in part because we just chatted and she was so fun to chat with. And it was just so fun to be in her home. This was one of the, again, pre-COVID, right? So I could do this interview, not online, but actually in her home. And her home just felt so comfy and cozy and it was so natural to talk to her. And, you know, that taught me something, you know, as a human, but also as a podcaster, just you know, people, as you get more and more practice with these weak ties, you know, having those quick conversations, you know, in the bank line, like you just become a genuinely more compassionate, more empathic, easier to get along with person. There's some lovely research about baristas, about if you, when you order a coffee and if you engage the barista in like a brief conversation, your um, sense of well-being increases and how even eye contact in the street with people can kind of lower feelings of loneliness and disconnection that it doesn't even necessarily have to be a spoken conversation. And I I just, I find that so, it's so self-evident in some ways, but equally quite brilliant to have it confirmed in in a piece of data, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think those those moments are, you know, you you notice them if you're paying attention, but they're often so fleeting, we don't realize it. I think this is a theory we get wrong about happiness generally. You know, we think happiness is sort of a destination. You know, you get to it and you're happily ever after. But, you know, what the research shows is that happiness is more like a leaky tire. You know, it kind of, if you're not getting a little infusion of joy, it goes down all the time. And those quick conversations can be, you know, a tiny but an important injection into our happiness tires. And again, I think we're only realizing that now in the context of COVID-19, where so many of those 
many injections we got are gone. You know, I think about the, the subtle social connections I'm missing in my day during COVID, like my walk to the coffee shop, you know, when I'll run into people and smile at them without masks on the street, right? Like quick interaction in a coffee shop with the barista or other people, you know, this lovely local coffee shop here at Yale called Coffee with a K. And, you know, half the professors, you know, that I work with are in the coffee shop too, right? So I'll chat with them, you know, walk to campus, meet with my students in person, have classes with students in person, you know, run into colleagues in the hallway. Like, you know, some of those are close people who I see a lot, like my students, but some are just, you know, people I might happen across once a month in the hallway, but they're all so important to our happiness. And the amazing thing is how much we're missing out on that right now. Yeah. And I think for solo workers, it's a lesson which is so worth learning because it's so easy to think when you're working on a project or you're writing something, you know, whether you're always solo or just occasionally solo, that you should just get your head down and do the work and that the hours spent grinding at whatever it is that you do are the ones that count the most when actually that isn't true at all. And one of the things that I discovered during the very first lockdown was I couldn't work in my home because my children are small and extremely loud. And my husband's photography business was closed. So I used that as a space to uh, write the rest of the book, the remaining part of the book. And I didn't realise how valuable it would be to just see other people like I would sit on the steps, it's on the first floor, and I would sit on the steps with a coffee in the sun and people would walk past like other little businesses that are nearby and we'd kind of wave and we'd yell hello to each other. And I did so much better work after those tiny interactions. And I really realised that actually, for me, it was problematic being at home on my own all day and that it wasn't doing anything for my productivity and it was a really odd realization to have because it's kind of completely opposite to what we would think. Yeah, I think we have this misconception of like, I'll go off to a deserted island and finish my book. That will be, you know, the maximum productivity I could ever have in my life. But we're most productive when we're happy. That's really what the, the research shows. We're most innovative. We come up with the most creative solutions when we're happy. And social connection, the, even with these kind of weak ties, you know, these quick, you know, hey, how are you kind of interactions, we need those to feel happy. And, and if we're not getting those, we need to find other ways to build it in. So I think, you know, the, these kinds of connections aren't the only way to pump up our happiness tire. But if you're not getting them, you really need to find other very intentional ways to get that pump up happening. Because if you don't, you know, things are going to be deflated and you're not going to be as productive. You're not going to work as well and you're not going to feel as good. So if we can step back a bit, could you tell me a bit about how you came to be effectively teaching happiness at Yale, which I know is not exactly the right course name because but that's what everyone calls it, right? It's, that's what everyone calls it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's only like, you know, slightly different. I called it psychology and the good life, but it was, you know, basically named to be sexy. And so, you know, it, it started when I took on a new role at Yale. So I've been teaching here at Yale for over a decade, but in just the last couple of years, I took on a new role as a head of college on campus, which is this sort of strange role where faculty are kind of living on campus with students, sort of doing programming and sort of taking care of a community of students in a dorm. And in this new role, like, I was kind of in the trenches with students in their own student life. And I just didn't like what I was seeing. I mean, I was just seeing so many depressed students, students reporting being anxious and having panic attacks or just like so stressed that they were fast forwarding through life, you know, and, and so many 
many students, in, in part because of their time pressures and things, reporting that they felt really lonely. You know, they're in this community of other students and felt lonely all the time. And I just realized, you know, this wasn't making for a happy college experience and that these students needed some strategies for things they could do to feel better. And so the class was born out of my attempt to kind of help them to like say, like, here's the science, but here are the strategies that come from the science. And maybe if you did more of that, you know, you'd feel better off. And so I just decided to teach this class on this topic of happiness. I, I, that's not necessarily my day job. My day job is sort of studying animals and looking at what makes us special and so interesting in its own right. But, you know, had enough background in positive psychology and the happiness work that I could teach this class. And, you know, I didn't expect what was going to happen next, which was, uh, it was very appealing. You know, I, I titled it to be kind of sexy to students, but it was like maybe too sexy. We had a quarter of the entire Yale campus that wanted to take the class. We couldn't really fit them anywhere. And we had to get a concert hall opened up so that we could teach it in the concert hall. And so it was a little surreal and it was like a lot of, you know, logistical issues. But I mean, it really taught me the students were voting with their feet. Like they don't like this culture of being stressed and anxious and lonely. They really wanted some tips for how they could do better. I wish that you had been at my university. <laughs> <laughs> I went to um, the London School of Economics, which I think it's not the same as Yale at all, but it's got parallel issues, I would say, in terms of that sense of, of kids going from being l- like quite successful in their small areas and then moving into an area where everyone's successful and you suddenly wonder what it looks like if you're not the most successful one in the room. Or the, or the brightest one or the cleverest one. And that's certainly something I struggled with very, very intensely. But I think that there are real parallels between being a student and being a solo worker. And I, I think actually a lot of my kind of solo working career mirrors the experience of being a student, like sitting on your own at a desk, trying to do stuff, which is often just a bit harder than you're comfortable with yeah, totally. and <laughs> or, or indeed really hard. <laughs> yeah. And so, so many other features, I mean, you know, my students, they, they kind of live where they work, you know what I mean? And the way I think a lot of solo workers face, especially now during COVID where most of their classes are literally in their room over Zoom or something like that during these sort of times of remote learning. You know, I think there's a lot of pressure on them to do more. It's not clear when you've finished, right? Because you could always put a little bit more effort into that paper or study a little bit more for that test, right? And so, and then there's always, the, you know, possibility for procrastination, right? You know, when it's just you by yourself having to decide how much to study or how much to work, you know, there's always these kinds of temptations. And, you know, when you're working by yourself, the temptations come up, but also the imposter syndrome comes up. One thing about working by yourself when you're not working on teams is you have to put all those insecurities at bay. You have to come to terms with that stuff. And so, yeah, I think the parallels are really powerful. Do you have like a couple of strategies that you could share that you maybe give to students, um, which would equally apply to solo workers, maybe to deal with procrastination or just to kind of fill up your happiness tires, as you put it? I just because I just think, oh, it's so hard for people working from home in their bedroom or studying in their bedroom, like the lack of boundaries I sometimes advise people to throw a sheet over the desk when they've finished, like just visually and psychologically create a boundary that says that part of the day and that part of life is done with for now and I'm going to move on and do something else. Do you have any other strategies that are slightly, maybe slightly more elegant than that? <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think the inelegant ones work also cheap. You know, the sheets are hanging around the house. You don't have to buy, you know, some crazy planner or something like that. But no, so just giving your brain some stupid cues of like, hey, work is over right now can be quite powerful. Another reason I love the, the sheet suggestion is that it's a lovely ritual that we use to kind of end the workday. 
And one thing we know from the science is that rituals really work. You know, this is why the walk to school in the morning can be so powerful or the drive home from work. Like you don't realize that you're kind of giving your brain a cue that, hey, this is over. You know, we can think about something else. But another thing I would suggest is really, you know, to, to find ways of boosting your social connection to inflate your happiness tires a little bit. If you're working from home, you need to do that more intentionally than most people. But I think we're all facing that right now. You know, my students face that right now. If they're not careful, especially the ones that are in singles, they might be in their room by themselves all day without connecting with other people. But I wanted to pick up on one other suggestion you mentioned, which is about this procrastination issue, which I think affects everybody. But again, when it's you by yourself solo in a room, it can kind of feel worse. I think those demons can come more insidiously during those situations. And that's a spot where I think we need to engage a different practice, which we we don't talk about a lot, but can be really powerful, which is this important practice of self-compassion. So many of us would give compassion to a friend. You know, we'd extend our friend the benefit of the doubt when things are going badly. You know, we'd give them some grace, but we often don't extend that same grace to ourselves. And the research really shows that self-compassion can be great for us in a bunch of different ways. But its most powerful effect is that it actually reduces procrastination. It makes us less afraid of failure because we know we're self-compassionate. We're not going to beat ourselves up if we fail badly. And so self-compassion actually can allow you to overcome procrastination issues in a powerful way. You know, many of the self-compassion practices we hear about in the literature, and this is from work from people like Kristen Neff at the University of Texas at Austin. You know, she suggests giving yourself some physical touch. As a mom would brush the hand of a child, do that for yourself or kind of give yourself a little self-hug. It can feel super cheesy at first, but the result is that you get some physical contact that we encode as soothing, right? And so you can give that sort of thing to yourself. And so it feels cheesy, it feels weak, you know, it feels all this stuff, but the research shows it's, it's not weak. It's actually a way to get stuff done. It's a way to be on top of your game. Um, it's not the way we think, but it's a way that's really quite powerful. I loved the, the conversation you had about food and diet in, a, in an episode of the podcast. Your guest was talking about how you should feed yourself as though you were feeding a loved one or a friend. And I kind of translated that I mean, well, I think, in fact, you and your guest translated that as something you could do so much more broadly. Like you should just treat yourself as you would treat a friend because we're so much harder on ourselves than we are on any other person in our lives, aren't we? Oh, totally. And I always remember, you know, reading the Bible where it's like, do unto others as, as you would, you know, have them do unto you. And I was like, I do unto myself in really mean ways. I better not extend that to other people, right? You know, you want to kind of do unto yourself as you would do unto others. We're often so much nicer to other people than we are to ourselves, right? And give them so much more grace. And so the good news about self-compassion is though, even though it can feel a little cheesy or even though it can feel a little weak, it's just extending a muscle that we already use with other people to ourselves. And so if you take it that way, it can really be quite powerful. And I also think the message that it can undo procrastination is in, is incredibly powerful because I would say that's one of the main questions that people ask me is how can I not procrastinate? Or they say, I couldn't possibly work for myself or by myself because I would just procrastinate all the time. I would just be on the sofa watching TV. I would never do any work, which I think is muddle-headed actually, because that isn't what happens. People 
do end up doing the work. But it's all the fear that kind of goes with it. I, I feel like there's a whole sort of swirl of fear. And I said this to someone else a few days ago, like I've been writing articles for 17 years now, but I still don't entirely believe I can do another one whenever I sit down to write for a national newspaper, which is what I'm paid to do. Um, and, you know, it's it's extraordinary the level of fear that we can kind of carry around with ourselves, particularly as solo workers, when there's no one necessarily around to puncture the fear. You have to do it for yourself. Procrastination comes with these other activities that are leading us away from our goals, not closer, mostly because we can't hang out with the fear. But there are lots of practices you can do to kind of recognize and allow negative emotions and try to ride them like a wave. Um, even the worst of negative emotions, you know, they tend to go away over time, right? Emotions don't stay. They kind of work like a wave. And if you are there to notice it, you can kind of watch it go up and crest, you know, which doesn't feel great, but you can kind of hang out with it and then sort of watch it subside over time. And there's a wonderful meditation practice. It's been popularized by the meditation teacher, Tara Brock, and it's called RAIN, which is an acronym for recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture. And so if you're typing, you know, like, I don't want to do this, like, I'm never going to get this sentence right, da, da, da. that emotion comes in, that's when you'd use ring. You'd recognize, okay, what is this? Often it's going to be fear, anxiety. Um, sometimes it's uncertainty. Sometimes it's frustration, right? Like, it just sucks to not be able to get it right. Sometimes it's something else going on, right? Like, what is it? T recognize and and be with that emotion and then allow it. Just say, okay, that's fear. Like, let's hang out with this. Where's that coming from? Like, and then you do the I, you kind of investigate it. You're like, all right, where's that coming from? Like, oh, you know, that's from that critique I got two years ago, or that's from my mom, or that that's just me. Like, you know, that that's where it always comes to, or that I'm never going to be good enough. Or stuff. Like, kind of be with it and then also investigate in a noticing. How, how does it feel in your body? You know, is your chest getting tighter? What cravings do you have? Do you want to run off to the refrigerator and grab something to eat? Because that would be better than hanging out with this emotion right now. Like, just notice and learn like a kind of curious investigator, like what's going on. And then what will happen is that, you know, the emotions wave, it'll kind of subside, you'll notice like, oh, I'm not getting the craving as much to run away. And it's okay. And that's when you do the nurture, right, which gets back to self compassion, right? Like, how can you actually take care of yourself, given that you had that emotion, not in a like, distract, I'm going to run away or, you know, grab a handle of vodka or whatever, like, what can you really do to nurture? Like, that means maybe you need to call a friend and talk to a friend about it. Or that means you need to do something to really take care of yourself, even if it's like a little, you know, self patting on the wrist of like, it's going to be cool and like, give yourself some self talk that'll make you feel better. And so that practice of RAIN research shows can help people eliminate burnout, but it's another practice that can allow you to get over procrastination in part because you don't run away from the fear, you kind of hang out with it. And once you've gotten through it, then you can just write or do whatever you need to work on. Well, I wish you were at my university. I also wish you were with me three hours ago when I was <laughs> trying to write 3,000 words for The Guardian <laughs> and, uh, and complaining about how I wasn't doing it on Twitter, which mm -hmm. is a whole, <laughs> whole mess of all of that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can we talk a bit about solitude and aloneness and how how it makes people feel? Because I feel as though there's something around our perceptions of being alone, which influence our emotional experience of it and a kind of maybe slight misunderstanding that people have where they think that being by themselves is automatically related to loneliness. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about about that really and, and whether we can kind of learn to appreciate solitude in a way that might make us feel a bit happier every now and then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of evidence showing that very happy people tend to be very social, right? You know, they tend to be around other people and they tend to have, you know, make time for friends and family members. That doesn't necessarily mean that very happy people can never be alone. You know, I think there's a lot to savor about being alone. You know, you can kind of be one with your thoughts. You can kind of mindfully pay attention to what's going on in there. You know, that allows for a lot of acceptance, a lot of self-insight. You know, these things are really important for living a meaningful life. You know, even Socrates noted the unexamined life is not not worth living. And I think that's right. You know, it's hard to examine your life when you're in a crowd of people all the time, right? You can, but it's just a little bit trickier. And so I think the kind of introspection that comes with being alone can actually be quite powerful. There's lots of things you can savor when you're alone. And so I think our expectations and our way of framing our alone time kind of matters a lot. And and I think we've seen this sort of in COVID, you know, many of my students, they had to be home on a Friday night, you know, would feel all this awful stuff. But now that everybody's home on a Friday night, it's awesome to be home on a Friday night People are kind of oddly enjoying it a little bit more, at least at the beginning of the lockdown, you know, March 2020, this like felt awesome and you're going to bake bread and just kind of, you know, have a cocktail by yourself, right? And so the key is to remember that we have a choice in how we frame things. And even if you frame things one way, that doesn't mean you can't update your framing to feel a little bit better about the situation. So does that apply to people who have been forced into solo working? Because I feel that one of the big difficulties at the moment is that so many people have kind of moved into remote work without necessarily having a strong sense of whether that was a choice or not. And actually, one of the things that I try and say as often as possible to people is that working from home or working remotely now is not what working from home or working remotely is like or will be like. This experience that we've all had over the last year is not what this is like I've done this for 12 years. I've hated aspects of this 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 past year. So it's not it's not a normal experience. But do you think even in the context of kind of being forced into something that we might not have chosen, we can still reframe our kind of expectations and experiences of it? Oh, definitely. I mean, this is the classic ancient take on framing, which originally came, you know, thousands of years ago from the Stoics, who really said there are two things in life. There are things you can control and the things you can't control. If you got furloughed, if you are forced to work from home, if your kids are home from school and you have to work from home, whatever, those aren't necessarily things you can control. Like if you try to control them, you're just going to be miserable. That's what the Stoics thought. The Stoics thought there is something you can control, which is your attitude towards that. You can think, this is fantastic. I get more time at home with my kids or like, I just cut off that awful commute. Or this is a moment, even though I haven't like wanted this to happen, it's a moment that I get to like 
practice my resilience. Even if everything about the situation is awful, the Stoics thought you could think this is great because now it gives me a chance to kind of practice my game on face. And all these ways of framing that kind of game on face, or this is a challenge to get through, or this is an unexpected benefit that gives me all these wonderful gifts that I didn't even expect. Like those frames are all possible to us. It just takes a little bit of a switching your mindset a bit. And can I ask how you feel about working alone? How's it worked for you? So many aspects of my work have changed to be more solo than, you know, I would have wanted. One is, you know, all my podcast episodes I did with my co-writer and producer, Ryan Dilley, who's fantastic. He lives in London, but would fly over to the States whenever we were in season. So he'd live at my house, you know, for weeks and we'd kind of work, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, while that might sound reasonable, it's actually quite fun, right? Like, you know, some of the best ideas happen that way. Now we're you know, doing it over Zoom or I send him a Google Doc and he sends the Google Doc back. It's, you know, it's just really not the same. And even in my life as a professor, being in the classroom with students where they can come up and chat about ideas afterwards or just chat about their day, seeing my lab mates in the lab, you know, getting to interact with other professors in my department. It's hard re-navigating this stuff, even when you're not doing it solo, even when it's like over Zoom, something real that's missing. And do you think Zoom is problematic or does it kind of work for you? Because I I don't know, I have quite of a mixed set of feelings about video calls. Like yeah. I sometimes don't think that they're better than nothing. I sometimes yeah. think actually nothing or a phone call would be better. <laughs> yeah, I think it really depends. I mean, it depends on lots of things and it changes, you know, day to day. I think, you know, when I think of what the pandemic in 1918 must have looked like before people had phones or, you know, the internet, or is it like, oh my gosh, that would have been so much more of a social hit, right? You know, so it's nice to have that option. Sometimes it's nice just to see my mom's face or to see my lab's face or to be able to experience other people smiling or laughing or making kind of fun. Even when it's like negative expressions, it's good for me to know that. And I wouldn't, it was just letters back and forth or emails back and forth or something. So I think it has its place. You know, is it perfect? Like, no, right. You know, we can't obviously have physical contact through Zoom, which for our friends and family members, you know, is really critical, especially for people who are, you know, their significant others aren't living with them or are living elsewhere. It's like awful, you know, to not have that, um, that piece of it. Um, it's not perfect in terms of the like audio. And so that's one of the reasons we often talk over each other. Normally when we're in person, we have this seamless conversation where nobody interrupts everybody, but you know, you're constantly kind of talking over people. Um, gets worse with the more people you have. Um, and so that's not perfect. But what I think the biggest thing that's not perfect is Zoom sometimes causes us to interact in a way that's pretty foreign for like normal life. We kind of do a boring thing when we're on Zoom, which is like we sit there very professionally and like look, right, where we're not kind of seeing interesting backgrounds or doing interesting things. We need to give each other a break and, and we can we need to recognize that we can connect socially in other ways. You know, I could pick up the phone and call my mom, you know, while I'm taking a walk outside. And yeah, I won't see her expressions, but if I've been sitting in a chair all day, that might feel a lot better. So I think we need to get creative with how we use these tools and make sure we're only building them in when it's giving us a net benefit and not a net loss. And I think that's really important because I think after the pandemic, these things are going to stay in our lives. And in some ways, that's hugely positive. I did a practice a few years ago that Laura Vanderkam advocates, the, the business writer, uh, where you kind of timesheet your life. And I so I did, I timesheeted everything that I was doing. And I realized I was losing seven hours a week to traveling to meetings to see people. Um, and I remedied that really quickly. But I 
have now become quite committed. And even before COVID-19, I was quite committed to putting as many of my meetings online as I possibly could to, so as to save time, which seemed like a really practical response to the problem. But obviously kind of cuts out a whole load of social contact that I would be having a real social contact that I would be having in a life which is otherwise really quite isolated at times. But, you know, we, I, just, I do think we really need to be cautious with how we use technologies in the future that can cut away at the social side of solo working. Yeah. And I think, you know, new technologies are coming. And I think with all technologies, including the ones we have now, we just need to kind of mindfully pay attention to how it's going. And this, you know, is is a way that I suggest people can get more intentional about their social connection. You, know, you do that Zoom call with your mom, like afterwards, just do a gut check. Like, how did I feel mindfully? Really? What was that like? Am I more exhausted? Do I feel more apathetic? Did I, am I energized from that? Notice how these things make you feel and build in more of the stuff that kind of makes you, you know, kind of come alive a little bit more, you know, and I think there are some technologies that we're going to replace after COVID with social connection, right? For sure. You know, I don't ever want to have a Zoom happy hour again. Like I want <laughs> real happy hours in a real pub. That's what I want after this. But there's some Zoom interactions that I hope continue. You know, my morning yoga, that includes friends in Seattle, like, you know, friends in London, right? Friends across different time zones that I would never, ever do yoga together. I could have done that before COVID, but I just never did. I hope that stays. You know, I hope I remember that I can connect with people who are far away just as easily as people up the street. Um, and so I hope we'll kind of build in some of these things. Also, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned the commuting time. I think that's really powerful. You know, there were so many conferences or talks or interviews I would fly out to before. And that was, you know, hard on me. It was hard on my family disappearing for so long. It was not great for, you know, climate change and these things. I was looking at my carbon emissions and it was awful. Now that I get to do some of those from my house, you know, I can really say, hey, this is medium important to me. I'll do it over Zoom, but I'm not going to like, you know, fly out to L.A. for this sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's so important. If we're working alone, we're not necessarily on our own, actually, when we're doing it. Sometimes we're just working on our own thing, but in the presence of others, whether that's your kids or your partner. I mean, my husband and I have been working from home together for 12 years, which I can tell you is massive. And obviously people have housemates and all sorts of different setups in terms of how they live. But many of us are working from home in that context. And I just wonder how we manage our own happiness and other people's happiness. Yeah, I mean, I think that's important to recognize that, you know, the people who are working solo aren't necessarily working alone. There's a cat who is like trying to get in between you and your laptop to try to get your attention. You know, your husband might walk in and ask about lunch at exactly the wrong time, right? How do you kind of navigate this stuff? And I think the answer is really, I mean, in two ways. One is, to make sure you have this distinction between the work time and the not work time. If the work kind of seeps into everything, then those other critters in your life, whether that's a pet or your partner or a housemate, like they're going to feel a little marginalized, right? Like they're going to want some of your time, right? I think finding ways to put that technology away so we can be present to people in real life can be quite powerful. Right now, I want you to move in with me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm so grateful for all of this. It's, it's There's so much wisdom in, in what we've talked about. So thank you so much. I feel as though this will be extremely useful. I also want to mention that your course is available online now for anyone, right? Yes, this version, as we talked about, you know, happiness class. If you Google Yale happiness class, you'll probably find it. But it's actually called The Science of Wellbeing. And you can check it out for free on Coursera.org. And if you're thinking... 
I'm working from home. I'm way too time famished to do a whole Yale class. You can also check out my podcast, which is called The Happiness Lab. And I have actually signed up for your course. I didn't realize that it was available online. So I signed up like two days ago. So I'm oh, fantastic. anxious to get started. I'll I can't be wait. seeing more of you in class then. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I really am grateful that Laurie is out there in the world doing this work and having these conversations. I also need to get my act together and carry on doing the Science of Wellbeing course, which I've only just started. And I really feel like it's going to have a profound impact on my well-being as a whole. I just have to, uh, I just have to find the time. <laughs> You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. Produced by Laura Hyde, with support from Fatuma Keira, original music by Dee Plume, and mixed by Alex Portfelix. Chalk and Blade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.